0: They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life.
1: No purchase necessary. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 379 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Sorry, I'm a little late this week. Thank you so much for joining me today where we're going to look at a pretty remarkable story about the allure of organised crime, the appeal of celebrity status and how a crime can be facilitated by being friendly of the right person in authority. But firstly it's time for our guest of the month in year game. In the UK top 10 this week there was Aerosmith with I don't want to miss a thing, Savage Garden at 10 with Moon and Back, But holding everyone off and claiming the top spot was I Want You Back by Mel B featuring Missy Elliott. Do you remember that one? (laughs) No, not me. In the US, it was Aerosmith at number one with I Don't Want to Miss a Thing from the film Armageddon, which starred Liv, daughter of the Aerosmith frontman Steve Tyler. In Australia, the best-selling album of this year was Yourself or Someone Like You by Matchbox 20. In the news this month, Swiss Air Flight 111 crashed near Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia. All 229 people on board were killed. The first ever Who Wants to be a Millionaire, hosted by Chris Tarrant, was on ITV in the UK. Now, if you were born then, do you remember just how much this show captured the nation? And in Northern Ireland, the real IRA declared a ceasefire. And David Trimble of the Ulster Unionist Party met Gerry Adams of Sinn Féin the first such meeting between Republicans and Unionists since 1922. And finally, in UK Trime News, Shannon Matthews was born. You will, of course, recall that she was later to be kidnapped by her mum. So, did you guess right? It was September 1998. Oh, well, there's always next week. TV dramas have, of course, always been popular and police shows, more popular than most. Going back to the 60s with shows such as Zed Cars and Dixon of Dot Green to the 80s and 90s with shows such as The Bill. Everyone watched that when I was at school. And as reality TV hit, it was a natural evolution where in the 1990s shows such as Murder Squad actually followed detectives investigating real crimes. There are so many of these shows now such as The Excellent 24 Hours in Police Custody, and others which are, how can we say, less good, but I'm sure you watch a number of these. One earlier programme of this genre was Mersey Blues. Do you recall it? This programme first aired on BBC Two in early 1999, and it was unusual because it not only showed the Merseyside force battling against firearms, drugs and other offences, it also scratched beneath the surface. It showed the real pressure that our police officers faced every single day. And this show captured the reality of excellent police work, frayed tempers, incompetence and even corruption. The producer of the show, Jenny Crowther, spent four years shadowing the Merseyside Police making the programme. But what was ultimately revealed in real time was more shocking and compelling than any police TV fiction. And when you are so close to the action and able to get beneath the PR it's inevitable that the incompetence we all display in our jobs on a daily basis, maybe that's just me, was clearly revealed. Now let's pick up one story that was covered by Mersey Blues today. It started in Liverpool in the northwest of England two years previously, outside a nightclub called The Venue, which was in the tubrick area of the city. Two men had a heated argument in the club, which led to one of them being ejected, nothing unusual then. After remonstrating with the doorman, the man pulled out a gun and fired a shot. Luckily, he missed the doorman. However, two police officers nearby had heard the shot and chased after the gunman. There was then some real confusion about just what happened next. The arresting officer, Constable Titherington, was very clear that the gun was aimed at him and fired again. He was lucky not to be killed. The Mersey Blues TV programme showed a senior detective, DCI Elmore Davis, who was known as Ellie, discussing the case with the investigating officer Titherington. The gunman involved was Philip Glennon Jr. and the PC who had risked his own life to arrest him was rightly held as a hero. But it soon became clear there was a problem. As is standard practice, Glennon's gun, a Colt 38 revolver, was subject to forensic examination by ballistics and firearms experts. To their surprise, the gun wasn't the standard item that was expected. It was a reactivated weapon, that is, as you know, it's a real gun that has been made inactive by an armourer so it can't be fired, but someone had crudely welded another firing pin onto the hammer of the gun, which theoretically made it operational again. However, it was quite clear to the experts that this gun had just been fired once. The reactivation and ammunition were of such poor quality that the cartridge had only enough power to project the bullet head just over halfway down the barrel where it remained lodged. So with one spent cartridge in the cylinder and five live ones, the expert concluded that it was clear and evident that Philip Glennon Jr. could not have fired a second shot at PC Titherington as the officer claimed. And the officer's colleague on duty that evening with him He also said that he'd not heard a second shot. Yet the officer continued to claim that the gun had been fired at him. Had PC Tithington been lying? Or was it just the trauma of the event had affected his memory? Or had there been a second shot and somehow the firearms people hadn't picked up on it? Meanwhile, the attempted murder charge against Glennon Jr. was dropped but even so he still faced a lengthy prison sentence for possession of live ammunition with the intent to endanger life. Meanwhile, across the English Channel in the Netherlands, the case had come to the attention of a man known to many of you. That man was Curtis Warren. Now, the Glennon family and the Warrens were closely connected and Warren was Glennon Jr.'s brother-in-law. Whilst Philip Glenn Jr. was facing serious charges related to the shooting outside the nightclub, His dad was also facing a spot of bother as he was being investigated for money laundering following the police discovering £1 million buried in his back garden. Glennon Sr. was chairman of his local neighbourhood watch association and it was said that each week he bought at least £25 of lottery tickets driving to the local newsagent in his Mercedes. So let's get ahead of ourselves on our timeline and briefly remind ourselves about Curtis Warren also known as Cocky, his book was called this, who is best known for being an English gangster and drugs trafficker, born in 1963 in Toxif, Liverpool. After serving time in jail, Warren worked as a bouncer at a Liverpool nightclub. It was during this period he gained insight into the massively escalating UK drugs trade. He quickly established the power that bouncers have to control who enters and exits venues along with which substances do. In the late 80s, Warren formed a working agreement with a local businessman and together they sailed to France and Venezuela, arranging a deal with Colombian cartels to smuggle cocaine concealed in steel boxes. But by 1992, Warren was riding his luck. He stood trial charged with importing a whopping £260 million worth of cocaine. After being acquitted on a technicality, he told customs officers as he left the court... I'm just off now to spend my 87 million and you can't touch me. Now, some admire this sort of arrogance, but whether you do or not, I think we can all agree that if he wasn't already at the top of the wanted list for customs and the police, he certainly was now. Despite his brush with the courts, he didn't feel the need to stop his operations. If anything, he was now even more arrogant, believing that he was essentially untouchable so Warren resumed his transatlantic trade. He was greedy, a customs man was quoted as saying, adding rather ominously, and there are no escape clauses in Colombian contracts. If they want you to carry on working for them, it's prudent not to quit. Indeed so. Warren correctly assumed that customs officers were watching him, so he moved his drugs business to the Netherlands. But he was, of course, eventually caught and served a 12-year jail term after being caught with cocaine, heroin and cannabis. Anyway, that was all to come for Curtis Warren, along with that weird adulation that some seem to have for gangsters like him. But let's go back to our story. At this time, Warren was in close contact with his associates in Liverpool, but what he didn't know was that his phones were being bugged by the Dutch police. This was quite unusual in the UK at the time, or so they tell us and the police needed special authorisation from a judge to carry out this surveillance, citing very good reasons, and the permission if it was given would be time-bound. But things were very different in the Netherlands, and the tapping or bugging of phones by law enforcement was commonplace. And although judicial permission was still needed, the level of evidence required was lower. The officer really just had to cite that the phone was being used to commit crime. The Dutch police had been tipped off by British intelligence but as their surveillance proceeded they were having problems understanding Warren's strong Liverpool accent. So two UK detectives were dispatched to Amsterdam to assist the Dutch authorities with the investigation. From the conversations, the Merseyside detective soon found out that Warren intended to destroy the case against Philip Glennon Jr. by bribing a senior Merseyside detective. Elmore Davis, known as we said before as Ellie. Warren had put the word out to find a senior detective who would, well how should we say this, be sympathetic to his argument and Ellie's name was put forward. Warren made it clear he was prepared to pay a large sum of money to Davis if he would agree to help him. The Merseyside detectives immediately passed this information back to the HQ in the UK but in doing so they broke the Dutch law. The detectives had been given clear instructions they were there as interpreters only and they were forbidden from passing information back to the UK police. But that's exactly what they did. The information about Davis was relayed back to the chief constable in Merseyside. According to Dutch law, what the officers learnt from phone tapping should never have been passed on. And to say the Dutch police were unimpressed with the two detectives would be an understatement. Although no one at Merseyside Police HQ had heard the tape of Warren first hand, the Chief Constable immediately set up a covert anti-operation investigation into Davis. Based in a secret location, of course, it ran under the codename Operation Admiral, and Davis was given the codename Nixon. The police do love their names for operations, don't they? Due to the obvious need for extreme secrecy, The team consisted of only five officers and was led by Superintendent Phil Jones. Now, Jones was something of an enigma, a mysterious officer, in so much as no one else in CID seemed to have heard of him. But he certainly seemed to be well connected and held some sway. A crime reporter from the Liverpool Echo would later approach him outside court and when introducing himself, Jones cut in saying, I know who you are. I have your voice on tape. Meanwhile, back in the Netherlands, Warren had instructed one of his henchmen called Tony Bray to take charge of things in Liverpool. Bray arranged for a middleman to make an approach to Davis and offer him money to get rid of the prime exhibit in the police shooting case, Philip Glennon's gun. But Davis didn't take the bait. He was having none of it and the exchange was quite acrimonious. Now aware that the underworld were actively seeking ways to destroy the case against Glennon Jr., Davis took action himself and moved the gun from Tubrook Police Station to the firearms department at Merseyside Police HQ. But significantly in doing so, Davis failed to report the attempted bribe. After 30 years in the police, he, it seemed, believed he was capable of managing the situation himself. He dealt with lots of difficult people in his career of course and he felt he didn't need to follow strict procedure and he was unaware that the team at Operation Admiral were fully aware that he'd been approached with a bribe. The team didn't take direct action with Davis at this point and instead the Deputy Chief Constable had Davis's phone tapped to monitor all his calls. A surveillance camera was also hidden in his office. This situation lasted for several months with no information suggesting that anything untoward was going on, but still the surveillance continued. It's usual in a case like this to use an external force for this work, but Merseyside didn't. This was because Davis spoke his mind. He wasn't afraid to upset senior officers and he didn't toe the party line. Dare we call him something of a maverick? It perhaps wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that some of his senior colleagues May not have been particularly disappointed if he ended up leaving the force rather suddenly. This is, of course, why having an external force is good practice, as it avoids this issue and the problems that some prejudice can bring. Another part of the surveillance package included videoing Davis's flat. The team noticed that a frequent visitor was a man called Mike O'Hearn. You might remember the name, he was a TV celebrity. At 6 foot 5 inches tall and weighing 20 stone, bodybuilder Ahern was a giant of a man who was a big old unit and a well-known face in the 90s due to his appearance on the popular TV show Gladiators where he was known as Warrior. Remember him? Ahern at the time was having some extensive work done on his own property and he ended up moving in with Davis and they shared his flat for a year. During this period they of course became very close friends one retired police officer who knew davis quite well said of this arrangement living with a high profile celebrity would have suited davis down to the ground because he loved the attention he said if ellie walked into a room full of people and there was a celebrity there he would have been straight over he wouldn't hesitate but david of course isn't the first person in the police force or in other positions to be seduced by the attraction of hanging out with celebs We see it today, don't we, in all areas, even the true crime world, where some people are so desperate to be close to celebrity. (laughs) Yep, I think we could be thinking of the same people. However, before Ahern found fame on TV, hitting people with giant cotton buds, he'd used his incredible physique, and it was amazing, to earn money by working the doors in Liverpool with, yep, you've guessed it, Curtis Warren. It's reported that when Davis found out that Warren had been to visit Ahern, he was furious and he warned Ahern of how dangerous Warren was and for him to stay away. As well as caring about his pal, you could surmise that he was worried the connection might rub off on him as it was well known around Merseyside that Ahern and Davis were close friends. really wouldn't look very good for the former deputy head of the Merseyside Police Drug Squad, to be associated with Liverpool's biggest drug dealer. Ahern was also friends with Tony Bray, the henchman who had first approached Davis in regard to a bribe, and it was Bray who told Ahern that if he got Davis on board, he would receive a large cash reward for his efforts. The surveillance continued at Davis's gaff, and a listening device was installed via small holes drilled in the ceiling. The team at Operation Admiral also carried out cheques on his bank accounts, but other than his salary, there was no evidence of him ever receiving any money that couldn't be easily explained. He was heard talking about Curtis Warren and pointing out the mistakes he had made. He said, if I had spoke to him, I'd have told him, don't talk on the phone and don't go back to Holland. And I bet he would have paid 50 grand for that, because I knew they had his phones on That's tapped. A month later, a home was booked for a celebrity appearance in Las Vegas Fe- and Eddie Davis went with him. On the way there, Davis told the gladiator all about the Glennon case. For Davis, this journey was a turning point. For reasons only known to him, during this journey he decided to change his allegiances and finally reveal to the gangsters exactly what he knew. In the next two days, over 30 phone calls were made between the Gladiators' house, Bray's phone, Glennon Sr.'s phone and the Netherlands. Meanwhile, Operation Admiral were extremely anxious as they were aware that the Glennon Jr. case was seriously at risk. Just over a week later, detectives heard through the listening device the information they were finally waiting for. Ahern told Davis he had received £10,000 from Bray. Davis then disclosed to Bray, his ace up his sleeve as he called it, that PC Titherington, the officer involved in the nightclub shooting, had a mistress and he was with her when he'd passed a dud check at the Comet Electrical Store in Edge Lane in the city. Given some of the activities of some police officers in recent times, this might seem quite tame. But back in 1997, this was David thought enough to discredit him as a witness and the case against Glennon Jr. would likely be thrown out. He also went on to say there was police evidence that Warren was trying to bribe witnesses from his base in the Netherlands. Davis confessed that this latter piece of information was highly sensitive, was known only to the police, and if it was found that he had disclosed it, he could face up to 10 years in prison. By now, Davis was firmly in the gangster camp and he went on and disclosed further details about P.C. Tiverington, such as information connecting him to a well-known escort service that he was very close to and it's alleged that other officers regularly visited too. The better the information he could reveal, he felt, presumably, the more money was in it for him. With this information to hand, the operation team decided it was time to make their move and they turned up at his flat, broke down the door, and strip-searched him as well as carrying out a thorough search of his flat. Curtis' associate Tony Bray was caught leaving the property with detailed notes regarding the information disclosed by Davis. This was enough, and the three men were jointly charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice and corruption. This trial took place at Nottingham Crown Court in September 1998, and all three men pled not guilty. The court was told that Davis was a chief inspector, earning £36,000 a year. Age 50, proud, loud, twice divorced, hard-living and a Freemason. He ran the CID in Tubrook Division, Liverpool, where crimes were committed at the rate of one an hour. It was a tough gig. In the witness box, his knuckle-sized golden ebony signet ring catching the light, he was nervous and he made some rather awkward and pretty embarrassing jokes. He's agreed he'd been passed over twice for promotion to superintendent and he was too old for the sort of force Merseyside was becoming. Not just too old, he was too down to earth, too gritty with no filter on his opinions. He wore too much bling and he was too much for Jack the lad. Davis claimed in his defence he'd acted out of concern that Glennon Jr would not get a fair trial He claimed that PC Tivington's disciplinary record was being covered up to strengthen the prosecution case. Then when asked about a bug chat in his sitting room when he told Ahern that he was very, very pissed off with work, he replied it was just a throwaway line. It was, he said, a load of bullshit. Ahern took to the stand, and it's fair to say he wasn't a man without ego, as he bragged that women threw themselves at him after he became a gladiator. He said... You eat, train, eat, train again, and then you have sex. Former gladiator Scorpio called him the vainest man I've ever met. I've never known anyone spend so much time looking in the mirror. An old friend said that despite earning £100,000 a year, Ahem was into any sort of money he could get his hands on. He would do any sort of appearance to get cash. At the height of his fame, he drove flashy cars and lived in a huge mansion. But like many other things, it was all for show. It was rented. The court heard about his early life when he was raised by his mum on a tough council estate in St Helens in Merseyside. He was just two when his dad left, and despite challenging circumstances growing up, he claimed to have rejected a life of crime that attracted many school pals, saying, I refuse to go that way. On the 24th of September 1998, the jury returned its verdicts. All three men had been found guilty of both charges. Jailing Davis for five years, again, doesn't sound much to me. The judge told him his motives had been sheer greed and anger at being passed over for promotion. The judge jailed Ahern for 15 months, telling him, your life was entirely taken up with leading a self-indulgent and indisciplined life. I have not the least doubt that you're led into these crimes by Elmore Davis. But he added, Ahern had continued with his eyes open, and had accepted the £10,000 from Anthony Bray for Elmore Davis. After the trial, a police source said, People like the glamour, the romance of being around celebrity villains, and criminals love to be able to tell their associates that they know a bent copper. They like to give the impression they can get things done. But what people forget is that the criminal fraternity and the police in the city Form a community like a village and people chat. You can't hide anything if someone has gone off the rails. People get out of their depth. It's ultimately very destructive. Although Davis was only tried for this case, he was certainly suspected of being involved in working with other criminals in Liverpool, providing information to help them avoid detection by using privileged information. Elmer Davis was the most senior policeman to be convicted of corruption for almost three decades. He was eventually released from prison in April 2001 after serving just three years of his five-year term when he hit the news again. He'd keenly anticipated his pension after nearly 30 years service. At his trial, it was revealed he was hoping a back injury would enable him to retire, to use his words, on a nice pension, 500 a week in my hand, just for sitting on my extremely fat ass, he reckoned he could work as a security consultant on cruise liners again. In his eloquent words, five hundred a week and all your keep and ale. Despite his conviction, in which he was described as a bent copper stewed in corruption, his lawyers spent hours pleading with Merseyside police authority to allow him to draw most of his twenty-five grand a year pension. But the committee ruled that 75% of it would be permanently forfeited, the maximum penalty permissible in law, and that he would only receive the amount that he had paid himself in contributions. Other than this, he seems to have disappeared out of public view. Perhaps his time in the celebrity spotlight wasn't all it was cracked up to be. One thing is for sure. Davis, he was a big man, he took a very, very heavy fall. One other loose end to tidy up is that Philip Glennon Jr. was jailed for six years for the attempted murder of the doorman at the start of the story. The doorman, as I understand it, didn't give evidence and it was alleged he was given a large sum of money the day after the shooting to buy his silence. Who knows if this is true or not? And it's also unclear what happened to PC Titherington after the gun that did or didn't shoot at him after the nightclub incident. So what do you make of what we've heard today then? Luckily, almost all police officers are honest and do the right things for the right reasons. Yet in this case, it illustrates yet again the obvious point that there are criminals out there willing to pay big money for their cooperation. Of course, at times of personal difficulty for some, this money may seem attractive. But once this line has been crossed just at once, A bit like the Colombian cartels referred to earlier. There are no get-out clauses in the contract. You are tied in forever. I feel a bit sorry for a hern in this story. I wonder if you do. Another example of how celebrity can affect people, even minor celebrity. But also how you are always a product of the community where you grew up. You may totally shun it and want to move away from it for whatever reason. But there is always, I would suggest anyway, some sort of draw to the place and the people of your childhood. I wonder if you agree with that. Now 63, it seems as though Ahern is now concentrating on his acting and singing career and has opened a gym in Merseyside. And as for Davis, was it worth it? I guess he was a bit of a man who knew that his face no longer fitted in the modern police service and this was almost his form of revenge. Well, was it? Or was it purely a financial decision. Whatever the reason, he paid a huge price for his treachery. It has to be the case though, right, when any corruption is uncovered in the police or any other authority. Although I'm not usually a fan of sending non-violent people to prison, I think it's vital in cases like this that a high-profile trial and prison sentence is there to act as a real deterrent. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group and join over 93,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime for bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Sarah Louise, Chayla Hazel, Colin Clark and Benji. Thank you all so much. Your support is much appreciated and keeps me producing this weekly show. If you're not supporting me at Patreon yet, please do join our community for the price of a cup of coffee a month, Cancel at any time, at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And this week, there is full-length bonus episode number 74 being released. Okay, so that's all for me for another week, the host of the UK's 37th most popular True Crime podcast. Until we speak again on Tuesday, not Wednesday... Please do take it easy and remember, despite all the others, and it's always the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. O, oh, O, oh, O, oh, O'Reilly Auto Parts.